John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with Him in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Amen. Okay. Numerous responses to that. That's fine. Uh, there was a, a time and uh, about 15 years ago where uh, a group of atheists rented a, a, a bus and they, there we go, and in, in that bus, possibly to troll Christians, possibly as an attempt to proselytize, which I don't know what the atheist position is on proselytizing, um, but they uh, bought ad space on a London bus, and uh, it read, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. This was on, I think, 800 buses. It was paid for by donations. People gave generously. I don't know if it was, they were trolling or they were believed uh, and wanted others to be set free as they had been set free. Um, if you look at that, there's probably one word that stands out, and that's the word probably that I just said, but uh, it was a little bit controversial. Uh, some, some people wanted it to say there's certainly or there, simply there is no God, and Richard Dawkins said, you know, the best we can do as scientists is say probably um, that there's no God. But honestly, what, what, what strikes me is the, far, the part about stop worrying and enjoy your life. Have you ever tried to stop worrying? Have you ever, has anybody ever said, hey, you seem worried. You should stop doing that. Uh, is that, is that helpful uh, to tell somebody to, to stop worrying? Or have you ever told a, uh, I, I worked at Disneyland for a number of years, and one of the things you would see parents urge their children to do at Disneyland is enjoy yourself. And you, we, I, you know, all the pressure, we spent all this money, enjoy yourself, we're here for fun! You know, why aren't you having fun? Uh, you know, it's not so easy to do either of those things, to, to stop worrying, nor to simply enjoy oneself. Um, is, is that the role that God plays in our life? Is that, the, is that the gift of Christmas? Fear, being afraid of God, and this scolding that anything we enjoy is probably a sin. Imagine three people waiting for a bus as this, this bus comes by. Uh, you know, one of them maybe is the, in a wheelchair, the victim of a hit and run, and sees that bus goes by as someone who has been severely injured by somebody who hit them, was never held account for their action. Would that have been good news? Or a single mom who was abandoned by husband, working hard, hoping to get home, wondering why the bus was late to get home to their kids so they can have food and she can help whatever she can do after working two jobs to, to get them to bed and, and to do their homework and to make them know, guys, you are loved in this house. Or somebody that's a combat veteran that is afraid to go to bed at night because of what awaits him when he closes his eyes. Who is that good news for? Who does that bus bring good news for? Who is it helping to say, as a, just a matter of fact, 
There is no God, probably. So just stop worrying and enjoy your life. Um, people tired, hoping for better, longing for justice, hoping the world would get better than what it is, tired, watching this bus go by. I wonder how many people actually saw that and found it to be helpful. I think most people read it and shook their heads and maybe not realizing that whoever paid for that bus doesn't understand how much many of us need a God so that we can stop worrying and so that we can begin to enjoy our lives. Maybe they, we think to ourselves, do we believe in God is the wrong question. I think the question that haunts most of us is, God, does God believe in us? And the good news is, yes, he does. And if you wonder how we can know that, well, that's what Christmas is for, to remind us that Christ came to us. Maybe if we want to stop worrying and enjoy our life, it starts with the words I just read. In the beginning was the word. That God took flesh and dwelled among us. What does it look like when perfect love comes to live among us? What sorts of things would you expect when love takes on flesh and makes his living around, among us, to dwell among us? Jesus came at a time when Caesar was the ruler of all the known world. In his fine, well, not quite yet everything, but Caesar thought it's just a matter of time before the Roman Empire covers and the blessings and the peace of Rome is seen on every corner of the world. That he came in his purple clothes. By the way, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Um, somebody asked me that, and I was like, well, quite a bit. I mean, I, Jesus was born in the Roman Empire. I, I, it's part of my job to think about it semi-regularly. That, uh, that was John being relevant and hip. Um, Caesar. Fine purple clothing, vast armies at his command. Um, they worship the gods that all empires worship, gods like Zeus. Zeus who does not skip either leg day or what's the other arm day? Upper body day? You know, a, a Zeus who worked too hard on his abs and biceps to... to uh, which one did you pick? Okay, good. The one where he's tastefully kind of turned to one side there. Uh, the other picture I had was not quite as tasteful, but again, uh, I'm not going to turn around. It is church after all. If you think this is what a God looks like, and if you think this is what a God who lives among us looks like, well, you're going to miss Jesus. Because Jesus did not look anything like that. When the Word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. Any good Roman citizen on the lookout for a God walking among them, imagination shaped by images of Zeus. Jesus comes short by, I'm sure, my standards, probably, you know, knocking on the door five foot, long, scraggly hair, beard, probably missing some teeth. I don't know if you could imagine in first century what a first century Jewish man would look like in his early 30s. And you're picturing a complete set of teeth. Um, again, you need to think more about the Roman Empire because that's simply oral hygiene. If a tooth gave you too much trouble, well, you just 
yanked it out. Part of what is striking about the word being made flesh and dwelling among us is he was so ordinary. He, you could not have picked him out of a crowd. Or could you have picked him out of a crowd? If you're looking at a group of 15, 30-year-old Jewish men in the first century, would Jesus have, well, what would you have maybe recognized him? What would you be looking for? It wouldn't be his physical appearance, but maybe it would be something in his eyes, something in his curiosity, something in the way that he held his gaze, looked straight at you. One of the things we read about in the Gospels is that people were drawn to him, that people felt safe with him to share, to be open to share things they'd never told anyone else. And did you know in the Gospels there's no record of Jesus denying a request somebody made of him? You want to be healed? Sure. Let me fix those eyes. Let me touch your leprous skin. Why don't you stand up, take your mat, and walk home? If you do a little dance, that'll make me smile. Because Jesus is always, forever, overflowing with joy. As you read the Gospels, who is attracted to Jesus? Who is drawn towards him instinctively? It's not the people you would expect, and it's certainly not the people that the religious communities drew. He gained a reputation of himself being a drunkard, and the accusation leveled against him was that he spent all his time with prostitutes and tax collectors. Here comes love, here comes God, the embodiment of the God of Israel, the Word made flesh, and look who his friends are. He thinks he's the Messiah? and he's hanging out with those kinds of people, he must be one of them. He must be a glutton and a drunkard. But Jesus was never disgusted by anyone. Never had that wrinkled nose of contempt and disgust that we so often see that we reserve for certain classes of people. Whenever someone came to Jesus, he saw them with love and mercy. People felt so safe that they said things to him they can't believe they're saying out loud to anyone, let alone someone they think of as the Messiah of Israel, to stop pretending, to stop hiding. There was something in Jesus' presence that awakened people, that brought them out of their shell. He would say to them the most radical thing you could say, one of the things he got killed for. He would say to them, your sins are forgiven. All your sins forgiven. I am the day of atonement. I am the one who has come as Israel's God to forgive sins. You have a fresh beginning. Don't waste it. He told stories over and over again of lost things being found of a sheep, hundred, flock of a hundred sheep, and one of them goes missing. And what does the shepherd do? Count his losses? goes after the one until they're found. A woman who has, loses a coin and searches a father who loses a son. And in each story, something lost being found. And after that being found, there being a party and a celebration. God saying, come celebrate with me. What was lost has now 
been found. In fact, he once said, that's why I came. I came to seek and to save those who were lost. He would spend his days with the lost and had no time for those who had actual religious or political power. There is one thing, there's one thing that he talked about. If you could say to any of his listeners, what, are the one, what, is the, what would you say is the one thing Jesus talks the most about? They would say, without exception, oh, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And you would say, oh, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. What is that? What does that mean? What do those words mean? And they would say, you know, he never says what it is. He just says what it's like. It's like a seed planted in the ground. It's like a tree that provides shade and comfort. It's like a pearl that you would sell everything you own to possess. It's like a wedding party that everyone's invited to. It's within you. It's all around you. It's like receiving a full day's pay for working just one hour. It's like wheat that grows among weeds. It's like a little bit of yeast in a dough. It's a treasure. It's a door that opens to anyone who knocks. It's a path that few find. It's something that children can see and adults struggle to see. It's like a camel working his way through the eye of a needle. He chose stories and metaphors as a way to describe it because it's not the kind of thing you can just break down in a few sentences, some words. When you try to do that, it slips away. But when Jesus talked about it using images and metaphors that were familiar, common, understandable, he knew that once these took root in a person, they would begin to see it all around them. But not everybody was a fan of Jesus. Not everyone was learning to see the kingdom all around. It's interesting to note who was naturally and instinctively repelled by Jesus. There's groups that mistrusted him, that were baffled by him, that debated over and over again, how can this man who deals with sinners, how can this man who says such heretical things like, I forgive you and I am, also be the one who heals, who teaches so powerfully, that if you're not careful, when he talks, you'll start to believe what he's saying and forget that he is a heretic. They were frustrated by his stories that tried to pin him down and say, just say who you are and what you've came for. Well, seed must be buried in the ground and die for it to bring life. Boy, it must have been frustrating to be a critic of Jesus in his day. One day, he comes to Jerusalem on a donkey and goes straight to the temple, this acre of, of land in the middle of, of Jerusalem with walls to keep the infection of the world from coming in. And he goes in and he says, this safe little space you've created has been corrupted by sin. This is, this is my father's house. This is a place for the whole world to come and to pray. 
to come and to meet the God of Israel, to find God. And you exploit that to rob people. And he cleans out the temple. He overturns tables. He sets the animals free. And something broke in them. That was when they realized, listen, you can have your teaching. You can have your moment in the the sun. But when you touch our economic well-being, well, they could never exactly say why he was such a threat to them. So they made up charges. They, they took him in the night, and they put him on trial. And as he went from trial to trial, as he endured mockery, beatings, judgments, he never defended himself. He didn't deliver himself as he delivered others. He didn't provide food for himself as he'd fed others. He didn't call angels down to rescue and deliver them. He took everything we could throw at him past, present, and future. He took our worst. He saw us all standing there, took it all, arms open, heart open, even there on the cross, looking for the lost. Always his heart open to us, that he could see and show the way for the kingdom of heaven sprouting all around us. And Nailed to a cross, arms wide open. But they didn't need to nail his arms, for his arms were always open and still are. Always and forever looking for the lost. Always and forever talking about the kingdom, showing the kingdom. Prostitutes, tax collectors, and ordinary Folk like us watching a bus drive by that reads, there probably is no God. Stop worrying and enjoy your life. And shake our heads and think, I just wish the people behind that campaign would give Jesus a a legitimate shot. Could see him as he really is. To see that even that bus is part of what Christ's arms are open towards. That they could actually listen to him and see him as he is. There is no worry in Jesus. There's no reason to worry. He's shown us the way to truly enjoy our lives. There probably is a God. So stop worrying and enjoy your life. I say probably because I'm trying to model the humility of Richard Dawkins, which is not nearly as hard as one might think. Um, That's right. So I can tell who laughed. Those who've read actually heard Richard Dawkins. I hear the story of Jesus and I think, this is too good to be true. And then I think, no, this is too good not to be true. The gods we create are gods like Zeus, full of anger and retribution. The story of scripture, the story of Christmas is a story that's too good to be true. We can go read historical criticism go down the rabbit trails of doubt and skepticism and conspiracy theories about Constantine and the formation of Scripture. Or you can just bet your life on Jesus, for he's simply too good not to be true. So this last Sunday before Christmas Eve, come to the table, for his arms are still open wide. And as you return to your seats, 
may you learn to bet your whole life on Jesus. Father, this last Sunday of Advent, as we come to the table, fill us with a renewed sense of joy that in the beginning was the Word, that the Word took on flesh and lived among us, that he looked for the lost, that he proclaimed the year of your favor, that he talked of the kingdom of heaven, and he died with his arms open wide. Renew us with a sense of wonder this Christmas, we pray in Christ's name.